0: We pick up our New Testament reading in the book of John, chapter 8. I'll begin at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. Our sermon text, it's a short one, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 12 simply says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. This is God's word, you can be seated.
1: Before we uh, dive into the scriptures today and get uh, three more uh, names, titles, descriptors of Jesus in our study of uh, of Him and who He is, let's just take a moment together as a church family just to to sort of bask in the mercy of God uh, with the Supreme Court decision from Friday. Jeremy, thank you for devoting. Uh, a major portion of your corporate prayer today uh, to thanking God for that. I confess that uh, I didn't think I would see this day in my lifetime, Uh, but here it is. And I I look out at you and uh, all the baby bottles you've filled and all the uh, money you've given uh, to this church so that we can minister and help our local refuge center. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we, we purchased their first ultrasound machine. Uh, God has always been abundantly good to us in allowing us uh, to minister in that way through, the, through his people here in their giving. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I'm speechless, I'm thankful See my fellow board member here, Carol, so thankful for her. Um, our history with refuge. Um, of course, the battle doesn't end. There are still uh, many pockets of our country that think destroying life in the womb is okay. And a right, a right, a constitutional right that's nowhere to be found in, our, in that document. So the battle isn't over. Our next, we we move our prayers to the next level now. That uh, that one day our elected le- leaders would recognize the personhood of of little people in the womb. Uh, Thankful for Becca and her work at the Newton Pregnancy Center. There's so many of you. So many of you have been a part of this. And continue to be a part of this. We want to continue to pray for our refuge center. And how, how the counseling uh, sessions may change. Now that, at least for now in our state, ab- abortion is pretty much taken off the table. Uh, so it's going to be interesting and exciting to see how that goes. So continue to pray for the counselors uh, and the staff and the volunteers and Angela at Refuge. Uh, But let's just take a moment. I know we've already prayed, but let's just bask in the goodness of the Lord. Thousands, if not millions of babies will be saved because of this. Thousands and millions will yet still be in danger. So our prayers continue and the battle continues. So let's just just go to the Lord just for a minute, just for a little, little bit, and just thank him once again. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you for the instruments you have used, the human instruments you have used to bring it into this national blight. What a day. What a joyful day. What a great day. And yet it's still a, a threatening day for many unborn people in our country in various parts of our nation. So we ramp up our prayers to ask you now that uh, you would totally end this this scourge of, of destroying life. Change hearts, change minds, sin revival and bring an end all over the our land to this heinous activity. Thank you for all the people in our country that for the last almost half a century have given and worked and prayed and marched every year in the snow and rain and good weather, whatever the weather was, who have clamored and cried out and and begged for the end of, of Roe v. Wade. And now it's gone. We bless your name. And we thank you. Keep your people diligent in this fight for the protection of unborn life little boys and little girls created in your image being knitted together in the wombs of their mothers so continue to help us Lord we pray specifically for our local center refuge for the center at Newton where Becca is we pray for their protection Pray for their continued diligence in ministering to women and families and unborn babies. Thank you for them, Father. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for this day. And now as we go to your word, we pray you would answer our prayer to know you better to know your son with more depth and insight to be drawn closer to him to love him more deeply and as that love grows seeing our likeness to him grow as well what a blessing sanctification is may it happen today to every believer in here as you wash us in the water of your precious word in christ's name we pray amen all righty so after a break for father's day thanks again justin for your message last week and your challenge to us dads and granddad's uh, we return today to our study of the names of Jesus. I'm not going to review the fast names we've covered. I told you that list would get too long and take up too much time. So I'm trusting you to keep up with that, okay? Uh, if you've missed any of the messages or didn't get the, uh, the Seat Saver with the names on it, then um, you can go over to our website or go online or get our podcast or wh- whatever those things are that we do that allow people to hear the message later uh, and pick up, uh, keep up with the list of names, okay? Uh, We're probably at around 20 now, maybe. So, um, question, why do you think I picked 1 Samuel 2.12 as our springboard text? You won't see this one in the bookstore either, you know. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Pretty straightforward. I picked that text as a springboard into our next section of names because as your pastor and as one of your elders commissioned by God to oversee and care for your souls for which we, Mark, Jeremy, Ryan, Justin, and myself will give an account. We don't want you to be worthless people. Not a single one of your elders wants you to be a worthless individual. We do not want you to waste your life. And what is this verse telling us very loudly and very clearly? It is telling us that at the root of the worthlessness of Eli's sons is the fact that they did not know the Lord. This is one of the major reasons we are studying the names of Jesus. We want to know him better. We don't want to be worthless. We do not want to waste our lives. And that that propensity as fallen human beings to waste sections of our lives or portions of our lives, if not all of it, if we choose to remain lost, is directly related to our knowledge of Jesus. The more we know Jesus, the more we know the wonder of who he is, the beauty of who he is, the majesty of who he is, the less we have the chance To waste our lives. So let's continue to press on in knowing the Lord. As Hosea 6, I think verse 3 says, let us press on to know the Lord. We move to the letter E today, and our first title or name or descriptor is Jesus is our example. Now I'm putting this with Angel of the Lord in the category of names with an asterisk beside it. Okay, so you can put an asterisk asterisk beside this name. You know, our first one was Angel of the Lord because of the disagreement among people smarter than me as to whether this was Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. I personally believe it was. I believe the Angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate encounter with Jesus. But I'm giving an asterisk to this one for a different reason, okay? I'm giving, giving an asterisk to this one because this is not highly recognized as a, as a title or a name for Jesus. You know, I can't think of any hymns where we, you know, ex- exalt Jesus or praise Jesus as, as example, okay? Um, I can think of one song where it's in the, in the lyrics, but as far as the focus of who Jesus is, You know, not really a name, not really a title. But I think it's a very important descriptor of who he is for us. Among the many, many manifold things that he is for us. This is an important one. And I'm including it in our list because I believe it's very important for us to see the areas in which the Scripture connects Jesus to being our example. So let's consider that this morning in, in our, as we look at this first uh, name or adjective, the of Jesus. I found, I found three places in Scripture where this word is applied to or connected to Jesus. And the third one is new this week. For years... For years, I would say, and now I've discovered wrongly, there are only two places in Scripture where the word example is used in relation to Jesus. But just this week, I found a third one. So, let's look at them. The first one, John 13, verses 12 to 15. When He had washed their feet, you know what the context is, okay? This is uh, right before Jesus goes to the cross, right before His institution of the Lord's Supper, He washes their feet. He just gets up in the middle of the supper and starts washing their feet. Okay? And when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and the Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. Okay? I have given you an example. So this is the only place where Jesus himself <clears throat> in Scripture uses the word example to apply to himself, okay? This is the only time Jesus uses the word. I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. So we take from this passage that Jesus is our example of servanthood, the washing of another person's feet was probably, in that day and time, the supreme demonstration of service, okay? We're not saying you have to literally wash another person's feet, although it's okay to do that if you want to. We used to have services doing that, okay? Okay. But we're saying it's pointing to the more general category of servanthood, okay? The washing of feet was the ultimate service in that day and time. So there's the first place we see it. Secondly, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This was the new one for me this week. Verses 15 to 16. Paul is speaking, and he's saying, "...the saying is trustworthy." And deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. There it is. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So in this text, we see Jesus as our example of patience. Okay? Patience. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Do any of us have that? (laughs) Perfect patience as an example to believers, to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So, Jesus is our example of servanthood, He's our example of patience. Number three, Peter gives it to us, we recently, not too long ago studied it, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example." An example. Usage number three of the word. An example so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus is our example of servanthood. He's our example of patience. He's our example of suffering for the sake of others. Suffering for the sake of others. Now, let's corporately ponder. Okay? Let's think together. Okay? The Bible calls us or calls Jesus our example once by Jesus himself in John 13, once by Paul in 1 Timothy, and once by Peter in 1 Peter. The Bible calls Jesus our example in what might be the three most difficult things for us to do. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, think about it. First, the call to serve others. The call to put others first. To consider others more important than themselves. To get down and dirty and symbolically wash their feet. To lay down our lives. To outdo others in showing honor. All these things that are connected to servanthood. Would you agree with me? That's one of the hardest things we do. Because we're born wanting our own way. Wanting to be first. First. We're, we're, we're born, as, the, as we've talked about in today's uh, members class, we, we're born lords of our own life, not servants of anybody. Secondly, the exhortation to be patient with others. Now, maybe that's not hard for you, hard for me, okay. The exhortation to trust the Holy Spirit to work in their lives if they're saved. The encouragement to never give up on anyone. Because Paul's basically saying the Lord didn't give up on me. I was a murderer of Christians. I was I wanted to see Christians locked up. And and yet as an example of perfect patience, the Lord had mercy on me. Servanthood, patience, the call to suffer for the sake of others. How easy is that for you? How easy is that for you? Christ suffered for us to pay for our sin. Are we willing to suffer for the good of others? I'm sure you're much better at me than, than I am. I, I get kind of perturbed when I have to suffer for others. So my bottom line point in this first descriptor for Jesus is it looks like to me, at least for me, maybe not for you. Maybe suffering for others is very easy for you. Man, it just comes naturally. Bam, no, it doesn't come naturally. Okay? Does not come naturally. Don't look at me so spiritually. It does not come natural. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. But some of these may be easier for you. But, but serving others, being patient with others, be, uh, be, suffering, for, not easy. Maybe the hardest things to do is, as a born-again person, as a believer. Yet these are the three the Bible says Jesus is our example. I'll close with this point before moving to the next name with something for us all to ponder. And it's a huge distinction that needs to be made. Because if you leave here this morning saying, okay, you got to serve. Got to serve. Got find, to gotta find a way to serve other people. Gotta be pay- I got to buckle up, pull myself up by bootstraps and be patient. I got mm, to be more willing to suffer. That ain't going to work. That might last about a week. It won't work, okay? Here's the distinction I want you to wrestle with, with me on. Yes, Jesus is our example. The Bible says that regarding these three qualities. We are to see him as our example, and we are to follow his example, but it's much more than us trying to live out these qualities in our own strength. As we follow Jesus, as we fix our eyes on him and press on, as we strive to love him with all that we are, as we delight ourselves in him, listen, we will find ourselves being transformed into a servant-hearted, patient, loving person who's willing to sacrifice and suffer for the cause of Christ. It will happen. How do I know that will happen? Because the Bible says it will happen even in the old testament psalm 37 verse 4 delight yourself in the lord and what he will give you the desires of your heart now the health and wealth people totally misconstrue and misinterpret that verse that is not saying that if you love the lord properly if you delight in him then you're going to get all your wishes granted for new cars and new houses and great big vacations and all that. No, that's not what that's saying. It is saying this. If you delight yourself in the Lord, then God will give you the very desires. He will give you the right desires of your heart. Namely, the desire to serve. The desire to exhibit Patience toward a loved one or an enemy. The desire to lay down your life for those that you care about, for those that God loves. You see the difference? Do you see the big difference? Paul taught this in Philippians 2.13. It's, it's God who is at work in you both to will what what is god's will that you be servant-hearted that you be willing to suffer that you be patient and god is working in you to bring that will about both to will and to work to display it by actually serving by actually suffering by actually showing patience when necessary, both the willing to work for what his good pleasure, his good pleasure. God is pleased. God by his spirit. Listen, beloved. God by his spirit is making us like Jesus as we behold Jesus. And that's what we're striving to do in these corporate settings of studying his names as we behold Jesus God's spirit is transforming us 2 Corinthians 3:18 and leading us to follow Christ's example in serving in patience in suffering for the good of others. Bless his name. Hallelujah. I know that's a fine line. That's that's a big struggle for all of us, okay? How does working out my salvation, showing effort, jive with and connect with God working in me? I don't know. It just does. God works in us. We work it out. Our focus should be on not so much serving and suffering and showing patience, but on delighting in, fixing our eyes on, and loving Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and experience and watch God transform us into servant-hearted, patient people who are willing to suffer for each other. You with me? All right. I hope so. Number two, Jesus is exalted. Exalted. Another classic descriptor of Jesus, probably more common than example. He's the exalted one. What does exalted mean? What's a good definition? Well, here you go. To exalt means to elevate in estimation and praise, to magnify, to praise, to think highly of. This is a big part of what our corporate gathering every Sunday morning is all about. As we've just sung, described in Psalm 34, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name, how? Together. This is the purpose, one of the purposes, one of the major purposes of our gathering every Sunday morning, to exalt the Lord together. Not in isolation, together. Now let's ponder the word magnify. Oh magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's make sure we understand that it's 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 not doing what we normally think of when we think of magnify. It's not that we are using a magnifying glass to make something small look bigger. Mamie and I are at that stage where when we read a book or get a card from some we, we've got a magnifying glass right there on our desk and we pull it out and look at it so we can read it quicker (laughs) read it better okay but that's not what we're talking about here we're we're not trying to make something small look bigger remember this is how we started the series with the quote from joe thorne jesus is not small the problem with many uh professing churches in our country is jesus is just small Jesus is not big to them, okay? The reason why so many of our brothers and sisters persevered in the pro-life effort and movement and will continue to persevere is because they serve a big Jesus. Jesus is big to them. And, And that's the point we started this series with. Jesus is big, He's big. So when we say magnify him, we're not making someone small look big. So we want to look at Jesus, as as John Piper describes it, not with magnifying glass eyes, where we're trying to make something that's already small look a little bit bigger. No, we want to look at him with telescopic eyes. What does a telescope do? A telescope oh, I got a hand back there, okay? (laughs) I got a responder to my question, okay? What does a telescope do? It helps you see things that are already big, huge, more clearly, okay? You get a telescope, you look at the moon, the moon's already big, or you look at Venus, or you look at Jupiter, or Saturn, those bodies are already humongous. They're already big. But you want them to get what? Look nearer. You want them to look nearer. We use a telescope to help us see big things better. Magnifying glass helps us see small things better. Telescope helps us to see big things better, more clearly. We want to look at Jesus, not with magnifying glass eyes, but with telescopic eyes. So when we say, let's magnify the Lord, we are saying, we want to get to know him better. On the day of Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell those first believers, Peter began to close his sermon in Acts 2 with these words, this Jesus, God raised up, And of that, we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing this Holy spirit that has taken up residence in these first believers in the first century has come directly from the exalted Jesus. When the apostles were arrested by the religious authorities for teaching and preaching about Jesus. They said this in Acts chapter five, verse 29 to 31. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins why could peter why could peter and the apostles buck the ruling authorities when the ruling authorities bucked to god because they saw jesus as exalted too many of our fellow believers will wilt in the face of pressure If they don't see Jesus as exalted and big and huge, if they don't have their telescope eyes on to see him in all his bigness and all his exaltedness more clearly. In Hebrews chapter 7, the inspired writer of that book in verses 23 to 26 says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost. Jesus doesn't halfway save you. He doesn't 75% of the way save you. He doesn't 99% of the way save you. He saves you to the uttermost. He saves you completely. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and what? Yes, you got it, exalted, exalted above the heavens, above the heavens. Not exalted in the heavens, exalted above the heavens. Jesus reigns over heaven and earth. Jesus, dearly beloved, dear church family, I pray you will have this vision of our Lord Jesus is the exalted one exalted above the heavens exalted above all things he is far above all idols and gods of this earth he is worthy of our utmost honor our unrivaled worship our highest praise our wholehearted devotion and our all-filled reverence Jesus, think about it, Jesus humbled himself. An example for us, right? We already talked about that. Jesus humbled himself from the glory of heaven, from his pre-incarnate exalted position to become a baby born of a virgin in a lowly, stinking Stable. He grew up, ministered exactly and perfectly as God directed him, was despised and rejected, and died violently and cruelly on a wooden cross above a garbage dump for sinners like you and me. And because Jesus did that, God lifted him up, just like Philippians 2 describes in verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Angels, living people, demonic beings. Every single creature and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, you can't say it too many times. You cannot overemphasize it. Jesus is the exalted one. This truth must be ever before us. We must keep it before our children. We must keep it before our co-workers. We must keep it before our friends. We must keep it before our... Unsaved loved ones as his people, we must be always aware and cognizant and be standing in awe of his exalted position in the universe. The big question this morning is this What place does he have in your life? What place does he have in your life? A place of equal standing? You're on the same level with him? Good buddy? therapist there when you need him or is it an exalted position what place does jesus have in your life that might be the most important question in your life to this point because here's the good news if you belong to jesus and thus have the right view of him the right exalted view of him what does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible promise us? It promises us that God will exalt you with him on the last day. What a day of rejoicing that will be. All right, let's, let's move on. This last one's kind of long, so you got to hang with me, okay? We've seen the Jesus. We've seen two descriptors, basically. Jesus is our example. He is exalted. Here we have a name, a name, a, a true, a bona fide name, okay, And we've seen this verse before, Isaiah 9, verse 6. One of our favorite Christmas verses, okay? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We've already talked about that one. Mighty God, that one's coming down the road when we get to, I can decide if we're going to do M or G there. But anyway, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here we go, that's where we are. Everlasting Father. I use the the. The adjective, the E word there. Could have put it in the F category, but everlasting father. Since F's the next letter, what a great segue, okay? Everlasting father, okay? That's what we want to highlight now. This name points to at least two things, at least two things. Points to a bunch of things, but I want to highlight two this morning. Number one, it reiterates the fact that Jesus is God. We are plainly told that. In the, in the verse that he's mighty God, okay, that's plain. but then this next title re-emphasizes that. He's mighty God, He's everlasting Father. In John 10:30, Jesus said, "What? I and the Father are one. We're the same eternal being. We're co-eternal, co-equal members of the Trinity. I and the Father are one. So it reiterates the fact that Jesus is God. Secondly, second thing I want to highlight this morning and spend a good bit of time on is the notion of family. Father points us to family. In Jesus, we are given the gift of family. You may have the worst natural, physical family in the world. But in Jesus, you have the best eternal family there could ever be. The gift of belonging. We belong to the one who created us. And we experience the joy of being in the family of God. Now, before salvation, what what were we? What's one of the things the Bible calls us? We were exiles. Exiles. We were separated from the family of God. We were outside the camp. We were foreigners. We were strangers. Listen to Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, because of Jesus and because of the new birth he has given us, listen to who we are. Same chapter, picking it up at verse 18. For through him, Jesus, we both, who's the both? Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, listen, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, watch this, members of the household of God. We are in God's household, i.e., his family. We are in his family. Let it, let that sink in now. We who were distant, we who were aliens, we who were foreigners, we who were strangers, we who were exiles, have been brought into God's household by the blood of Jesus and given a birthright and a spiritual heritage. Beloved, no matter what's going on in the world today, our future is bright. And secure. (laughs) As Peter told us, our inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It cannot be spoiled. It's unfading. It won't go away. It's kept securely in heaven for us by the very power of God. As Paul said in Romans 8 17, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. John 1, verses 12 to 13. We talked about this one in our members class this morning. Great class, by the way. you got to get to know these people, okay? Celeste and Jen and Clayton and Matthew and Keith. Man, what a great class, okay? This is the verse we looked at, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right? The right, I think some translations say power, the power to become children of God. That's a right and a power that's got to be given to us. We're not born into the family of God naturally. We're reborn into the family of God, supernaturally. (laughs) He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. We don't inherit it from our parents. Uh, nor of the will of the flesh. Our decision doesn't do it for us. Our decision is the result of what God has done, nor of the will of man, but of God, totally, totally of God, gift of God. Beloved, bottom line, th- this is a miracle. This is a miracle. Becoming a part of the family of God is a miracle. It's the most underrated miracle maybe in the Bible. We don't talk about it enough. We don't think about it enough. We don't ponder on it enough. So too many of us crave these external miracles. You know, we like to, we like to call things miracles. They really aren't miracles. They're just a pro- part of the providence of God, the merciful providence of God. But we hardly ever talk about one of the truest most wonderful miracles of all, the miracle of new birth, being raised from the dead spiritually and placed into the family of God. It's a miracle, an absolute miracle that happens to us on the inside. We don't decide to become God's children. We don't sign up to be in His family. God gives us that right. Please Let this sink in. It will affect your worship in a a good way. In a good way. Many people don't worship properly because they think they're involved with something that they signed up for. That they were smart enough to figure out. And so their worship turns inward instead of upward. God gives us. right to be his children he grants us new birth he what did peter tell us he causes us to be born again he adopts us into his family by an act of his sovereign will he takes the initiative he chooses us before the foundation of the world so beloved what is your response What is your response to that truth? It can only be worship. It can only be adoration. It can only be deeper love. And when that happens, guess what? You go back. You become a better servant. You become more patient. You become more willing to suffer for the family that you're a part of. Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love the way it all works together? I encourage you this week to ponder. I'm going to get you started. But to ponder the wonders of being adopted by God. There are many. There are many. And we've talked about them before on several Sunday mornings. I'm going to highlight two this morning to get you started. And as Peter exhorted us or exhorted me, exhorted elders, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. Number one, adoption is wonderful because our creator, the one who made us, becomes our father. Our creator becomes our nurturer. Our creator becomes our discipliner. Our Creator becomes the one who raises us up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He becomes our Heavenly Father. Adoption changes everything, everything. And the first thing, the most important thing it changes is our standing before God. Adoption radically, radically, listen, radically changes our relationship with God. The one we used to run from because of our sin, is now the one we run to because of his his strength. The one we used to hide from is the one who now holds us. The one whose fierce wrath used to hang over us like the sword of Damocles now has his strong arms around us. The one we used to tolerate which some of you may, do, may, may, may be doing right now. Right now, you're just tolerating God. You're showing up on Sunday, you're sitting in your seat, but you're just basically tolerating everything. But for the reborn person, the one they used to tolerate is now the one they venerate, the one they worship, the one they revere, the one they stand in awe of, the one they are always attentive to. the one we used to tack on to our life, the one we used to add to all the other hustle and bustle and chaos of of the mundane, the one we used just to kind of tack on to the end of, of that, the one we used to just add to our life, now is our life. You see the difference? It's huge. It's huge. Through adoption, everything has changed. It's all changed. God is no longer some kind of force or impersonal being out there in the distance somewhere. He is now our Father, close, intimate, personal, nearer to us than our hands and our feet and closer to us than our breath. As Paul said in Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. Papa, Abba, Father, intimate, close. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are no longer moralistic, therapeutic deists. The number one religion in America. That group of people who believe in a God, little g, but he's distant... Who created everything but's not involved in it, who is there in emergencies and is some kind of therapist who's there with the sofa for us to lie down when we need some comfort, some kind of bellhop at our beck and call, someone when we need to share our feelings with someone, an infinite God who wants us to be nice to everybody. No, we're no longer in that group. We're no longer moralistic, therapeutic deists. But now we are his children. In a spiritual sense, the blood of Jesus that saved us now courses through our spiritual circulatory system. We are his children. He is our father. And Jesus is our big brother the one we want to be like. And He is the most important person in the world to us. Real quick, secondly, adoption is wonderful, not only because our Creator has now become our Father, but it's also wonderful because it removes us from our hopeless situation. When God adopts us, we are transformed we are transformed as adopted children of God. Think about it. Think about the results of that. As adopted children of God, we've gone from being dead in our sin to being alive in Christ. We've gone from hopelessness to hope in the glory of God. We've gone from being slaves to being sons. We've gone from despair to delight we've gone from the family of satan to the family of god from the family of the prince of darkness to the family of the father of light we've gone from the pit of emptiness to the place of fullness fullness of joy fullness of life itself jesus came that we might have life and have it more full have it more abundant We've been given the fullness of purpose and meaning and every other good thing. We've read this verse many times. Brother Ryan has preached on it. Psalm 1611, you made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Through adoption, everything is different. Everything is new. Why? The eternal creator is now our everlasting father. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Hear it? Hear it at the end? The new has come. It has come. It's already come. It's come. It's here. It's not waiting until heaven to come. It has come. It came with a new birth. It came when God adopted you into his family. He, it came when he raised you from the spiritually dead and gave you life. Why? Because we've been adopted by God. He has taken us out of our squalor of sin and brought us into the family of holiness. He has rescued us from the desperately lonely isolation, sale of self, and brought us to His kingdom of righteousness with others we wouldn't have chosen, but for whom we now would lay down our life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. He has removed us from the place of apathy And nonchalance and sleepiness and flippancy and non seriousness about the things of God, and brought us to the place where our dominant thought is how to please God and live out our purpose in glorifying Him. We've been adopted. Things have changed. We breathe different air. Instead of the air of the world and the air of self-centeredness, we now breathe the air of holiness and the air of servanthood. Instead of reeking of the stench of the world, we give off the aroma of Christ in every place. Why? Because we've been adopted by the King of Kings. We've been adopted by our wonderful Counselor, and mighty God, who is also our everlasting Father. A glorious inheritance awaits us. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. When you trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you become a part of eternity in the good sense. Okay, in the good sense. Because unbelievers are part of eternity too. He he failed to mention that. I want to add that. Unbelievers, you don't escape eternity. You're a part of eternity, too, in the very worst sense you could even imagine or dream of, okay? So he's talking about here in the good sense. You became a part of eternity. You receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus has fathered eternity in the lives of all who have trusted him. And this involves much more than simply having our sins forgiven and knowing that we have a home in heaven. Those who belong to Christ have become part of the very life of God and have entered forever into the realm of the eternal. The good eternal. The perfect eternal. Eternity with God and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and every other precious brother and sister that has ever lived. In other words, we are the direct opposite, the direct antithesis of Eli's worthless sons. We are not worthless people. As the apostle John said to us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And what kind of love is this? Paul describes it beautifully in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, you will never lose your status of adoption. You will never be ejected or rejected from the family of God. Our final word today comes from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Man, I love this. Jesus, it is the name which moves the harps of heaven to melody. Jesus, the life of all our joys. If there be one name more charming, more precious than another, it is this name. It is woven into the very warp and woof of our psalmody. Many of our hymns begin with it. And scarcely any that are good for anything end without it. It is the sum total of all delights. It is the music with which the bells of heaven ring. A song in a word. Jesus. A matchless oratorio in two syllables. A gathering up of the hallelujahs of eternity in five letters. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, the name above all names. Thank you, Father, for giving him to us and making us joint heirs with him as members of your eternal family. And now we rejoice in coming together In this time, to this family meal. Bless this time, Father. Thank you for Jesus. In his precious name, we pray. Amen.